welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I am joined by Julian Nesbitt, and he's the founder of Dr. Julian Medical Group. Uh, Julian's got a background as a doctor, still practices as a GP, and founded the company to improve access to mental health care through using technology. Uh, so Julian, uh, welcome to Health Tech Podcast, mate. Long overdue this, but uh, yeah, how you doing? Hey, James, thanks for having me on here. Yeah, no, not too bad. All good. Just uh, coming into summer now, so... <laughs> Yes, things slowing down a little bit. But yeah, really. absolutely. Although time's <laughs> flying, mate. Midsummer, yeah. midsummer. Although it feels like we had our summer, like with the heat wave and stuff. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Whereabouts are you speaking to us from, Julian? Where are you based? Yeah, so I'm actually in uh, near Sirencester at the moment. Um, I uh, I split my time between here and then London. But yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, nice. a, I'm a water baby. I love uh, water skiing. So in the summer, I try and come up here to water ski. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Water skiing, that's Sorry. awesome. I've never, well, I say I've never, I've never successfully water skied. I've obviously tried to water ski, tried wakeboarding because yeah. I thought, oh, I snowboard, so wakeboarding will be absolutely yeah. fine. Uh, it was not. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome, man. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah summer must be glorious for you down there to uh, get on the water and do stuff. But yeah, man, as I say, long overdue this. Um, you've been a relatively big name in health tech for quite a while. And like, yeah, we obviously have caught up, but looking forward to getting your full story on here, dude. So yeah, where we start these podcasts is to get you to tell your story. So tell us the long version, mate. Where does this all start for you um, and go from there? Sure. Okay. Um, right. So interesting. So I, um, so obviously did my foundation training. I was in... Uh, uh, Bristol Medical School, and then I trained uh, in Swindon. I guess there was an original idea, actually. Um, having seen the likes of Uber and online banking and others, I this was back in 2015 when I had this sort of original idea, and then you saw the likes of the G, some of the GP services coming online with, with their teleconferencing, and I just thought to myself, when I looked at the evidence of therapy, online therapy actually proved to have more efficacy than face-to-face, interestingly. And I kind of thought, okay, well, if you can have a conversation online in the comfort of your own home with your slippers on and your cup of tea, rather than having to travel somewhere, park in a dodgy car park, work out where to go, you know, it's, it, it's, it, I just felt that was way more accessible. And at the time, there wasn't really a proper online platform that encompass the whole care pathway there was obviously telehealth was was growing but there was also a a big sort of movement in healthcare that was sort of anti uh teletherapy in a way definitely at nhs england they were you know they weren't they weren't accepting of it um obviously as time progressed and sort of covid happened that all changed interestingly but yeah i'd say at the time i thought to myself you know we've got incredibly long waiting lists that are getting longer we've got clinicians getting burnt out um what can we do about it? And in other industries, tech had really sort of taken off. And I know in healthcare, we're trying, but there was still no sort of real winner or real player there. And there's so much white space for tech to sort of help. And um, for me, it was about trying to improve access. So I thought to myself, right, well, why don't we create uh, a platform that could give people choice, uh, allow people to find a clinician uh, and match them to a clinician that's most suited for them. And obviously, if you have a platform, you can have a much broader base of clinicians. And I thought to myself, um, why can't we have this sort of full care pathway electronic health record that encompasses the patient? So 
when you look at how case management is done now, I mean, it's pretty much all just the clinician writing notes and there's no patient facing dashboard. So I thought to myself, why are we not putting the patient first here? So, you know, let's create a patient dashboard because surely that can improve efficiency and care, right? So if you have that dashboard, people can be matched, find their book their own appointments, which saves time. You can give them access to the notes and letters, which saves printing, because I found that ridiculous that we're sending letters all the time to everyone. Um, you, you can actually customize forms and note templates, et cetera, so that they can actually write, potentially write the notes for the clinician and do all the assessments beforehand. So again, saving time. So wanting to really link the, cl- the clinical side to the patient side, to the admin backend um, uh, backend side, sort of in, in this sort of all-encompassing thing. But I had to start somewhere, obviously. So that was the sort of broader vision, I guess. Um, and so I was a fat, you know, I was a junior doctor at the time. I was actually I, I doing A&E training. Um, I know you did anesthetics. Was it anesthetics you did? Yeah. Um, mm. So yeah. I was doing, uh, yeah, I was on ACCS training. So obviously that was intense. Uh, mm. And I sort of wanted to, uh, <laughs> wanted to work out how, you know, how could you start something? So I had an original uh friend actually a partner who sort of i teamed up with at the time who unfortunately didn't that didn't work out for us but it was a sort of stepping stone to get us going and you, you know where do you start so it was back in the day um, we found uh, these russian developers that were relatively relatively cheap actually so we sort of tried to build this very terrible mvp uh for the private side so originally i thought okay let's uh, create some platform that, you know, was mainly the patient side, but with clinical notes to, to the private side. Now that sort of terribly failed because no one uh, used it uh, because in, in the sense of uh, marketing in the B2C world is, is, you know, quite difficult. And especially found in the UK, people don't actually, the majority of people don't really want to pay for their healthcare because obviously you know, we get it for free in the NHS. So that uh that was the start and you've got to start somewhere and then you've got to kind of build from there i guess um and then i got a break actually having contacted various nhs organizations thinking okay can we um you know what is the what is it that the the nhs trusts are needing well you know we've got terribly long waiting lists for uh therapy and the they're getting you know trusts etc are getting punished uh, and fined for these waiting lists uh, and they need to find solutions to help reduce the waiting list so i thought okay well we've got a technology that's not brilliant at the moment but uh, we've you know we've collected some really good therapists actually that um could, could help so contacted the trust say you know could we help you with your waiting list just give us a pilot let's let's try it on the first one and i got my first break in thorough so they kindly said, okay, let's give it a go with it, with a small number of patients. And, you know, I didn't have a, a large clinical, um, uh, a, a huge number of, of clinicians at that time, but I did have a, a clinical director to ensure governance, et cetera. And, and there was obviously trying to build it with very strong governance from the, from the outset, you know, ensuring that they had the relevant qualifications for, um, it was step three IAPT uh, CBT at the time. So it's sort of step three CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, that was, was the longest waiting list. So that's where we started. And um, patients came in. The tech was okay, but not, it wasn't great. Uh, I sort of had to phone every individual patient to apologize for the tech, but <laughs> we're going to provide you with good therapy and, uh, you know, we're trying to build something here. Give us a, give us a break. Let's, uh, can I get your feedback? Um, so that because we sort of were personal at the start, we, you know, it, it was good and, and they, they accepted it. And then we just went from there. Now, having sort of built this uh, technology with a, 
original Russian developer, obviously that didn't really work out. So I had found um, a chap who is now working as our sort of tech lead and who was absolutely brilliant. And he helped to rebuild, uh, rebuild the platform basically for this use case. So we then started with a, a better foundation um, with a, the patient side, the clinical notes side, um, and a bit of an admin backend side. And, and then it sort of then just grew from there. So every time, you know, it's taken six, seven years to get to the point we are today with, with the tech that we've got. But, it, you know, you start somewhere and you build it up, build it up, build it up. Uh, so in terms of like my medical training as well. So during this time I was doing ACCS um, and then I realized that you can't build a company and do ACCS slash uh, A&E training. So I dropped out of that um, and managed to get onto GP training. So I thought, okay, I'll do GP training. I did that part-time. Uh, luckily I was allowed to take six months from my A&E off my GP training. So I did a sort of year uh, of that bit and then did part-time um, GP from there, which actually was, was great because it, it allowed me to do things whilst I was, I was training. Cause obviously didn't take a salary for a very num- long number of years. Um, and you kind of did, I was kind of doing everything on my own well, with, with help obviously from my tech guy, but you know, you're, you're not really building a company at that stage uh, and you have no idea what you're doing. So uh, <laughs> you sort of have to try and um, build it up. And it was only really in the last uh, three, four years where we, you know, we've, we've actually built a, a sort of proper company with with a lot of um uh, people around us to, to sort of help to scale it and i guess that's a learning that you go through where you try and do everything at the start i mean i'm terrible at certain things and detail and accounting etc I'm, I'm much better at other things so learning how to delegate uh, was a very important thing but you can't do that at the start you, ha- you know you haven't got the money to do it so we basically i tried to bootstrap it i got i got some angel uh, funding initially I was able to get some well friends and family and then some angel uh, funding, which uh, from my perspective, we bootstrapped. I didn't know what I was doing. So I was trying to you know, really keep the cost low. And then, as I say, slowly built it up from one trust who then said, OK, let's try it at another. So we were then getting a second contract and then a third contract to provide therapy and all the time learning and building up the technology. So I was kind of lucky, actually, in a way to 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 enable us to, to get into the NHS. But I think, you know, it was because we were providing something that they desperately needed. So they ended up coming to us and we didn't need to really do any uh, marketing from that perspective. So, yeah. Uh, and then, as I say, that, that kind of built up. Uh, and then here we are today. Uh, we're scaling rapidly at the moment. We're in, a, we're in 33 or 35 now, uh, NHS organizations providing uh, the, the care on our, on our tech. Um, and, got a team of, of 50 with, uh, people, which is growing rapidly. We, again, we've kind of bootstrapped it but to date. I was able to get a uh, SBRI grant to help to sort of implement the technology in into the NHS as well, which was brilliant. And then I've done, uh, in total, I've raised about a million pounds of, of angel funding, although we're now, uh, we're currently sort of doing a raise, working out whether we do a bridging type round or go straight in with a larger investment and, um, of which we're in a number of conversations for that. Um, so, yeah, that's a sort of, <laughs> I guess, the funding th- side is an interesting one as well to talk about later. Um, and, yeah, so we're in 30, 35 NHS trusts now, growing rapidly, um, providing quite established clinical care with, with strong clinical uh, governance, et cetera, around that. Um, because of the tech that we've built allows us to build sort of customizable white-labeled portals or tenancies for each organization that we work with, and then we can customize those inside the portals. We can provide lots of different types of services. So um, we're pretty much covering off most of uh, NHS-type therapy. So 
uh, step two, with, which is where you have a psychological well-being practitioner, and then the step three CBT, the counselling. Um, then we've got uh, well, there's different counselling uh, modalities, and then you've got the step four care as well, um, more intense. And now we're starting uh, children's services as well, so you can sort of build up those services as you go along. Interestingly, though, um, having built all this technology, I guess we then had uh, other organisations coming to us to say, "Can we use your platform?" Because the idea was that we, you know, we improve patient care and we make everything far more efficient and deliver that service in a much, much more efficient, better way. So that's then now uh, our second model, I guess. So we've got a solid baseline of, of, of uh, tech-enabled service, uh, and now it's a sort of a SaaS model where we start licensing our platform um, to organisations to use our platform to provide their service on, and that's starting to gain some significant traction. Where um, We've launched this in some very large healthcare providers such as Vita Health Group, um, NHS Practitioner Healthy using our tech, which provide all the mental health to doctors. Um, we're in discussions with a number of larger providers. And interestingly, it doesn't now just have to be used for mental health because of the technology. It's very flexible, modular, customizable. It can be used um, for multiple sort of care pathways. Uh, so potentially physios, dentists, et cetera. And we're even being approached by some international healthcare organizations to um go from paper potentially to our system uh skip a generation i i'm not going to insult the electronic healthcare record market but i do find i do think it's ripe for innovation um again why did we put the patient mm. first why don't we create a much more user-friendly system um let's let's you know let's have a so in my opinion we, we need a new model of care right the current model isn't working um we need to mm. have a, a preventative model so patient-facing dashboard give patients access to the right self-help tools and resources to help them before when they don't need it, work out when they do need it for assessments, et cetera, then put them in the right care pathway more efficiently, treat them in that. We're building things like um, new products. We want to innovate UK grant to build um, digital therapy homework because people don't do their homework uh, sent on an email. If we can digitize it and use AI to help people uh, work out the best ways of doing, you know, what homework they can do, et cetera. The goal setting is based on the four major CBT principles. So with that, that could help them between their sessions. So, you know, tools, resources to help them between their sessions to mean that we could, could potentially re uh, reduce the number of sessions needed to help free up clinical time and then help them after their sessions. So, you know, keep them in uh, relapse prevention afterwards. So that's the sort of theory behind it. Um, and I think, you know, this new, a new model of care is needed to, to really free up clinical time. And then obviously overlaying all of that is the, mm. is the admin efficiency that you can bring with technology, um, as you go along. And then there's some interesting things that we can do with data, um, later on as well. So it's an exciting time for us. There's, there's a lot going on. Um, and yeah, I feel, you know, I guess now a mission is obviously the mental health care, but can we also, disrupt the potentially the electronic healthcare record market and put the patient first, I think is a, a new interesting mission that we have now as well. It's an awesome story, man. Like congrats to you for getting it this far as well. Like there's a lot that I want to, there's loads that I want to chat to you about. I want to chat to you about, I want to go right back and actually chat to you about your experience working as a doctor. I want to, I want to go into the product as well, actually a lot more because yeah. there's a few different things about the product itself that I think are really interesting. And then I think your view for the future as well with, this new model of care that you think is needed. But you and I came through at a pretty similar time, probably. Like, I'm, I'm wondering, like, what your experience was like as a doctor. The reason I ask is because next week or the week after, 
um, at the time of recording is when the new F1s start. They're going into an NHS now that is in so many ways so similar, particularly for the experience of junior doctors and in so many ways so different in that I think a lot of the people qualifying now have probably got their eye on technology and other things. I know that there's lots of medical students that, that do stuff for us at SOMEX and a few different bits and bobs. Like They've already got like side hustles and things that they're doing. They've got interest in technology. Like the, the, the world is a bit more abundant and there's more optionality, I think, for, for doctors going in there. For us, though, that wasn't really the case. As yeah. Certainly nowhere near as much, I don't think. And by the way, not saying that everyone going into medicine should have a side hustle. In fact, any anything far from it, to be honest. But um it, there are still more options now but what was your experience like as a doctor like what what gave you the confidence to sort of even think that growing a tech company was even possible like can you talk to me about that a bit yeah no that's really interesting i think um firstly i got inspiration because of the challenges that i was seeing i think well my original inspiration right was i came mm. across number of patients working in A&E that had all tried to to commit suicide and I was like hang on I'm seeing so many more of these people and then what happens is they go down someone comes down with a form and they do a tick box exercise about risk and they don't even deal with any of the problems it's just tick 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 okay off you go yeah and I was just like hang on these people are not getting the care they need and obviously they go back to the GP constantly the GP has no time you get prescribed antidepressants where actually I thought you know the the real the real issue here is to deal with it with proper you know therapy let's deal with the problem let's actually listen and, and, and try and give people techniques to do that but obviously the waiting list was so long so that's where my initial inspiration was from how can we get people access to to the to the thing that could actually treat them properly faster more conveniently better model of care etc so that's firstly i had a, like a very strong mission and i think that's what drives you so if you're really passionate about something you will just keep going um that's i guess what gives you the confidence to do it at the time, as you say, the NHS is a different place and it was very frowned upon. Um, you're working as a doctor, you should be a doctor. That's it. Carry on. And I got a lot of resistance from that actually. Um, interestingly, I know, you, you know, the clinical entrepreneur program, etc. I'll give them a shout out. They really helped in the sense that that was just when Tony was starting it actually. And it, they can't, you know, having met so much resistance in my work, having that sort of tribe that said, actually, no, give you permission to do it. Um, and that was obviously you started with all this resistance and it was so refreshing to have that permission to do it. So then I was a lot, a lot more confident uh, moving forward as well, I think. Um, but, I, you know, the key to, to getting something done is having that relentless passion because, my God, is it hard and is it a roller coaster and you have to work incredibly long hours and you know i just think the, the biggest thing i had maybe what, what got me through was resilient like i just kept going and none, i came up with so many barriers um nhs england were very anti it at the time as well i went through a period where mm. um they were like you do not provide therapy uh on online and you don't do this because you'll steal all of our therapists um and that was you know <laughs> and then i was actually saying no no no, i'm trying to bring the therapist back in we even had therapists that had left the nhs and even moved abroad that could now work back in the nhs because we were providing a platform to allow them to do that so it was trying to change the the mindset around that it was very challenging as well um obviously then covid really helped in terms of the acceleration of that but yeah i think your question about how do you do it is, is having a passion and resilience and keeping going and pivoting when you need to um as i say private app didn't work where else could we go 
think about the NHS, mm. think about other other routes to market. So yeah, I mean, we're we're mainly NHS focused now, although. Uh, we do. We are starting now to work with health insurers, occupational health companies, etc. Who can refer, and so we're starting to broaden our horizons. But the NHS was the one that I guess where is most needed at the time, so that that's where I started. Mm. I really like that man. Like passion and resilience. That's a heck of a combo. And resilience isn't necessarily gifted. That's also built over time yeah. through tough experiences and all the rest of it passion can be gifted but passion can also grow and one of the things that i've written down here is that lots of your uh, it feels to me like your passion for solving this problem came from this process that felt quite inhuman is that fair to say like someone i think so yeah it'd be very bizarre and this i find this in medicine a lot like it would be very bizarre if what happened in a hospital happened in the outside world like walking past beds of people screaming in pain and you're a clinician you could do something about it but you don't because you're so busy that you've got to go to something more uh, like there are these weird things that happen in medicine that just don't feel right and it seems like you've come across one here that someone comes in and bears their heart and soul about being at a point in their life that they want to end it and they don't want to experience any consciousness anymore because every moment of it is so painful. And yet someone comes down with a tick box form whose only goal at the time really through the form is to pass them on to somewhere else. Now, that's a reductive way of looking at it. Perhaps I'd argue it's actually a relatively descriptive and possibly quite fair way of looking at it, although there will obviously be people within that 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 think and feel a lot more empathy than what I've just described. But I think that is your experience at the time. And I think the point that I want to make here is that what you wanted from a solution actually seemed like a lot of common sense. Like it it just seemed like a mixture of sort of common sense, what was available in technology at the time, and doing what you think felt right and changing that path to be more human and contain more empathy in it and more care, I guess, in healthcare. It's actually care that you're looking for there. And so that's where I can see the passion comes from. The resilience part of it, I think, is also really interesting because it sounds like you had quite a tough start. The devs and the co-founder that didn't work out the the mvp and the struggles that you know struggling to get it used at mvp stage the fact that you're coming across this new thing called marketing this new term called b2c and noticing that b2c marketing is incredibly difficult when you don't have millions to chuck at facebook ads at the time i imagine um difficult people don't want to pay for it there are lots of this resilience but one thing that came through in your story is that you seem to just start something and just keep going and iterate and make it better a bit by bit. You're happy just shipping something and just making it better after that. And it seems like you you do have this kind of, I'm just going to push through. So I guess my question is, do you think you were born with that passion and resilience or do you think that grew and the reason i ask it is because there'll be people listening that want to start their own business that see their way into that that perhaps haven't had those experiences or perhaps don't have the idea or perhaps don't feel as if they've got what it takes all of those things so was it 
Were you were you born and were you born or made as this entrepreneur? I guess is my question. Yeah, very good question. I think um, that's a question that a lot of people get. Sort of, what is that? Can you become an entrepreneur? Were you born with mm. the genetics of an entrepreneur? I think. Look, I definitely uh, learned and grew along the way. I think, um, and every and anyone can do it. So people shouldn't say it's. It's again, it's about that passion and resilience to say you can, you can, you can learn and you can do it if you have that resilience to keep going and finding a way through, uh, which is, which is the key. Now, I guess I, I did have a thing where, so my father was an entrepreneur and he, uh, died when I was quite young. So I also potentially had that sort of drive to, to try and, to try and make him proud, I guess, or, you know, there's that inside you as well. So maybe that is, is part, potentially part of it, but to be honest, anyone can do it. And it wasn't, it was learning along the way. And it, you know, it wasn't, I don't think I was necessarily born with it. I think it was more the fact that you can, you find a problem that you're passionate about and you need to solve it because you have seen this problem affect so many people. Um, these, these people are on waiting lists for nine months and then they're actually ending up trying to end their lives to me, that was a problem that I needed to solve. So that's why, how, how you yeah. sort of drove through that. Yeah. No, I respect my, I love that. Yeah. So let's talk about the product next. You talked about, you mentioned a phrase, step three CBT. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, sure. Um, so in the NHS, um, and in general, actually, you kind of, you have a, what's called a stepped care model. So you have, people obviously have differing degrees of severity of their mental health problems. So um, step one is normally self-help type tools, um, which can work if someone is motivated, often not if they're not motivated, uh, of which in mental health, lots of people aren't motivated. Then you have step two, which is in the, well, in the NHS, at least it's someone called a psychological wellbeing practitioner or it's called a PWP. Uh, these are trained people uh, that are trained to a certain level. Uh, and the NHS have a, a talking therapy service. Um, it was called IAPT. It's now called the Talking Therapy Service, and it's, it's it's across the country. And the way that this model works is the Step 2 PWP for those that have mild to a little bit moderate mental health problems. And then you have what's called Step 3, um, where you have CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, or you have different forms of counseling. And you know there's differences between what CBT is and what counseling is. And there's obviously there's there's, there's counseling for depression, there's interpersonal therapy, there's didactal behavioral therapy. Uh, and then you have other forms of therapy like uh, EMDR, which is used for trauma, which is called um, rapid eye movement desensitization. And then you have step four, which is a lot more severe, um, people that have more complex needs such as borderline personality disorders, etc. So step three is sort of a moderate, well, moderate to mildly severe uh, depression anxiety and other common mental health problems and then the step four is, is that more complex thing and, and sometimes you need a, a clinical psychologist for that or you need someone who's more highly trained at step three so there's a sort of progression um in the training and, and in the way that 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 works um so i actually think that's a very sensible model because it's about allocating resources appropriately that obviously requires a decent and thorough assessment to take place to understand which part of the pathway that person needs to be on and i also think it you need uh, patient choice, although sometimes patients need guidance in that choice. But I think, you know, sometimes we just give people 
this tool, you say you must use this tool. Well, I don't want to use that tool. It's um, where you say, you know, you need to go for a run. Well, hang on, I don't like running. Uh, well, you need to go for a swim. Hang on, I don't like swimming. So again, it's about, I think we, ha- we have to personalize it to individuals. So again, if you can use an online platform that helps to provide choice and personalization, then, you, you know, for me, you can get way better, um, way better engagement and outcomes. So, yeah. Nice. So I can remember the sort of time period around then when you would have been setting this up. And I can remember this tension between doing something that diagnosed and treated versus doing something that just you could just ship on the app store with no guilt and would do something vague. And there wasn't, I don't think at the time, or it certainly doesn't feel that way right now, there wasn't the, I suppose, infrastructure for like software as a medical device there wasn't the sort of regulation and pathways that made things as easy i don't think i think that feels a lot easier now or at least if that information is more democratized now so like we we sort of know that if you're starting okay are you diagnosing treating or decision support or whatever and you can follow the path and there'll be a path at the time though that must have been well, can you can you explain that to me, like what that was like? Because you, you, that must have been quite difficult to do. And what what was behind the decision to go in at that level? Because thinking back, that must have been a really difficult level to go in at. But heck of a yeah, moment behind yeah. you once you had. No, interesting, Jake. So, okay, and this is an interesting question because where you are a medical device is sort of where you're providing something like necessarily brand new that is diagnosing that's not involving a human being. So for me, it was about, okay, mm. sometimes we can't jump five places uh, of what we're used to doing. So it was more a case of, right, what's the current framework? What are people currently doing? Well, okay, they're providing step three CBT with a person. Okay, that's what they're doing. Right, well, how can we, I'm still going to provide step three CBT with a person. So therefore, I'm still providing the same care, but I'm going to do it slightly differently. And I'm going to use technology to make that better and more efficient. And I'm going to try and provide personalization and give and give patients choice. But I'm still providing the same care, if that makes sense. So hence why that can be uptaken. Whereas if I started to say, no, I'm going to create a robot that does it, then that can't be uptaken because that's too different. So for me, it was around, okay, what can I do that provides the same care, but do that better or more effect- effectively? Hence why that kind of works. And then over time, you can start to build out more innovative. I think online therapy was kind of innovative at the time, actually. Um, And I suppose you're right in the sense that doing it online wasn't as accepted, but there was still a lot, there was actually a lot of evidence showing it was, it was great, but the NHS just, just didn't believe in it at the time. So I was like, no, 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 we should, we should do this. And that's why um, you then have to get the pioneers to sort of believe in it, but I'm still providing it with a human being. And also the patient's got choice. So if they didn't want it online, they could have it face to face. They obviously then just had to have a, a long waiting list. So from that perspective, you know, you weren't you weren't being too radical to start with, and you, you're sort of building it out. Now, obviously, the product can then evolve and, and become more radical as as, as, t- as time goes on. Um, but yeah, medical. The other thing with medical devices. So I think we did. We were a medical device at one point, and then I was like, actually, we don't need to be a medical device because we're 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 not using a robot we're not you know we're not uh, 
doing things radically different here. We're just providing you know, assessments more effectively, the, the therapist more effectively, all of those things. We're pr- making efficiencies in the way that we're doing things. Um, and, then the, and then the other big thing was outcome. So because in IAPT and in mental health in general, there's very strong outcome measures that you can measure stuff on and they're validated. I mean, obviously there are people trying to make these better. And I know that, and you know, the, the, you use PHQ-9 for depression, a set of questions that can give you a score at the start and a score at the end um, or, and, and through the, through the therapy. So you can tell if something's working or not. And then we were able to deliver actually better outcomes at a lower cost um, with less did not attend rates. And, you know, you can measure all of those things. So as soon as you have that data and that evidence, you can start to, to really prove that out and to keep scaling it. And that's, that's the point. What was good about our tech was that, you know, you constantly evaluate the outcomes and we're still evaluating the outcomes all the time. And, you know, even with now we're trying to do some more innovative, even more innovative, well, maybe these, this is becoming more radical, uh, although I'm starting slower. So, you know, the digital therapy homework is still going to be in use with a human being, but we're just digitizing the way that that's working. Although we're putting AI into that, mm. so that potentially over time, you might not need the therapist. Or the idea is that you don't need the therapist as often. So, but again, you're not, you know, you're not suddenly going, you don't need a therapist. You're, 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 you're implementing something to make that therapist more efficient. And I guess that's my philosophy in life is not going too fast where people don't accept it but just slowly progressing based on what is accepted and i think that that's has to be the case in the nhs for sure i think that's really interesting so for all intents and purposes what what i'm getting from that is like instead of there being a room where two people are you know one is giving the other is receiving therapy you're essentially just putting the digital pipes together to still allow that interaction but you are the pipes in between you're not anything to do with that at least this initial stage we talk about the homework and stuff later but getting people comfortable with that and then acknowledging hey we can actually capture data about the interactions we capture data about the frequency and do not attend and all that stuff and we can use that to inform better pipes pipes at different places pipes that go from a to b or to c or to z or and then you can start to improve care and therefore you can start to demonstrate that you're doing the right things for the system and therefore the system can end up paying for it and so your business model starts to emerge you alluded to it there but i'd like to ask you more about your relationship between incremental change versus disruption you talked about the nhs as a well, it's a collection of organizations, isn't it, rather than a single one, but a collection of organizations that are risk averse, that it is difficult to scale into. You've scaled into 35 NHS organizations, which is superb. Um, and you, you you mentioned that that relationship between incremental change versus disruption can lead to scale. So can you link those things for me? Yeah, um, I'm a big believer in disruption, uh, but in <laughs> In the NHS, if you disrupt things too much, it just will never work and it will never be uptaken and people get very scared. Even still now, right, even you, you speak to a clinical lead and you say, I'm going to implement AI and then they, they just switch off. They're like, oh my God, no, no, no I'm, I'm, not, I'm not dealing with that. And you, it, it takes time <laughs> for things to be understood and adopted. So you can't go too quickly to sort of get... In, in an organization that takes time to adopt things, you, you, you need to be more careful and you need to say, look, I'm still going to provide the same level of care here. I'm still using, but I'm going to do that in a more effective manner. And then over time you can build it. But yeah, I think, I don't think disruption 
as in bringing a sledgehammer to something works at all in the NHS. It might work. It does work potentially in, in, in other industries, but yeah, I think does that, yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, mm. how do you want me to It does. Yeah. My question would be, do you, do you think that's, do you think that's the NHS? Do you think that's healthcare? Do you think that's public sectors? Do you think like, where do you think yeah. that is? Yeah. Okay. So, and, and if you're going to implement any innovation, right, you need an innovative organization first. Um, but yeah, I think, well, in healthcare in general, you still need to provide a very good level of care because you're dealing with a, a patient here. So you've got to be more careful than in other sectors. So I think healthcare in general, um, you need to be careful. Um, and it's like, you know, mm. if you're going to do a trial or something, you, you can't say one person's going to get from an ethics perspective, you can't say one person's going to get the treatment that works and the other person's not going to get anything or, you know, it has to be a novel thing. So for me, you know, I think in healthcare in general, you can, you can trial new and novel things, but you've got to give people the baseline of what they're currently used to, because therefore you are, you're treating someone and not just uh, leaving them in the lurch, if that makes sense. So I think it's healthcare in general, but I, I, from an NHS perspective, it's even more so, I think, because obviously there's very stringent structures and boundaries and, you know, even in the, now the NHS is under so much pressure as well. So if you try and change a pathway too radically, it just, it's just going to be very difficult because they are resistant to change. That is the nature of, of, of the NHS and people are, are working in a certain way. Um, I mean, it is difficult, like even as, even as a GP myself. So I do a day as a GP still, which I think keeps me on the ground and the, you know, working out. And even I, when someone tries to, in our practice, we implemented this whole new model. And at the beginning, I was like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. <laughs> so even I was like that, which I found funny. <laughs> and then when we implemented this new model, it actually it, it works better. So I find that fascinating. If you're working in an organization and you're used to doing something, it is difficult to do something completely differently. So you've got to do it in steps. Right, here's a unique opportunity, right? So you've just mentioned that. When you first heard it, you, your, your first impression, your visceral kind of thing that jumps out of you is like, uh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't. what is that? Like, what, what do you think that was? Was it you grieving for the time that you're about to lose with training? Is it that it might not, it, if you've got an assumption that it probably won't work and then there's going to be more on my plate to fix it? Is it the organizational change? Is it the... Uh, the workforce, like, um, I was going to say splashback. That's not the right word. <laughs> Backlash. There we go. Is it the, is it the workforce? But what, what is it that's making you go, ah, no, to begin with? Or is it just a fear of patient care going down or quality of care? Like, what is it, do you think? Yeah, and actually, that is fascinating. I never thought of this before because I'm doing it on one side and then I'm, I'm actually it on the other side. And yeah. I, I, was it, and I was the guy that didn't want it. Uh, no, I, obviously, I, I then was quickly like, no, 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 we've got to try it. And, but the initial thing, I think, is the fact that you're busy, you're used to doing something a certain way, and this is, you know, you've got to change the way you're doing something, which for me involves work, and I haven't really got, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm used to this. I like doing it this way. Why do I have to do it another yeah. way? So unless the benefit, well, they say this in the NHS, so unless you can improve the benefit by 10 times, you it's not gonna it's not gonna work so you have to prove what the benefit is going to be to that individual of how much time saving it will help them in the long run for them to have that motivation i guess to change and i guess you know nobody like that's just wired into our human brain right so if we're used to doing it we know what we're doing there's a fear of the unknown we don't know what we're doing i think you know that's that's a big thing i think i guess it's human nature 
Yeah, and actually, I'm going to do a bit of a crossover here because we had Conrad from the NIA um, on the Health Tech Pigeon podcast the other day, and he said we had two like really like quotes that stuck with me. The first one was that he sees one of the problems in NHS organisations as the risk of doing nothing is uh, less than the risk of doing something. In fact, it's far less. And that's a problem. The other thing he said was that we need to decide whether we we think the NHS is an organisation responsible for high-quality care or whether it's an organisation responsible for its own innovation as well. And he actually pointed to industry and pharma as a as people that should be stepping up in terms of helping the innovation because they've got the resource, they've got the time, yeah. and they've got the financial incentives that when you improve adherence, then they are the ones that benefit. So why should the NHS give up internal resource yeah. to basically fund its own innovation that it doesn't particularly benefit from as much as industry and others that benefit on a P&L. So yeah. there was some interesting stuff there. I don't know if any of that resonates. Okay. Yeah. So this isn't so that you've got the sort of entrepreneur and entrepreneur argument here, I guess. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's brilliant to be an entrepreneur. I think um, it is great. And there, there are things that can be improved in, in incremental changes, but okay. So, this is my opinion. Everyone, everyone's opinions differ, but I think to make huge, big, big changes, you sort of need the resources of an external organization, like the entrepreneur, because mm-hmm. unfortunately as an entrepreneur, you're still kind of working full time. You haven't got millions of pounds to, to make big differences. You know, it's some people have, and some people have been incredible and they've done it. Um, but I think you're right in a certain extent. The, the concern on that would be the prof, the, the huge profiteering or, you know, the, un, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons or the uh, there's ethical considerations and you've got to be, people have got to do it for the right reasons and have um, patient care, I guess, in mind, cost savings in mind. But in a way, right, if you're going to make big changes or you're going to change a way of doing things that will improve drastically, you need resource to do that. And I think if, um, if you haven't got the resources and as you're right, like if you're taking people's time away, um, that could be a problem. I do think though that if you're going to be an external organization, you have to include the entrepreneurs in the development of that because they're the ones that are on the ground and understand what's going on because, you know, that's the big problem, right? Where people don't understand the problem or they're not there understanding what's going on. Um, you know, cause it, I guess I was, my passion came from living it and understanding the problem, right? So that's, that's the thing. And if you're an external organization, they might think that they know what they're doing, but they, they don't. So I think mm-hmm. entrepreneurs have huge insight and, and can do amazing things, but they need the resource to be able to do it. Mm. I love that you still wear both hats, man. Do you still enjoy that clinical day? Yeah, I, I love it, actually. I find it very rewarding. And because it's only a day, I, I mean, I really feel for the GPs, mm. like I'm exhausted by the end of that day, but I, GPs that are working full-time, my God, I really feel like it's important it's horrendous but i kind of go in i'm like right i've got my day i try and do a swim first thing in the morning i'm like really motivated i come in and i'm i uh and i just i just i just do it and by then you know because it's only a day you just work really hard on that day and i find that and i just i love Mm. being able to see patients still i think as a doctor you've still you've got that inherently in you where you know and i think what's unique and great about gp is that you are anything can walk through the door like you are 
diagnosing all the time, which I find really interesting. And and again, just having a personal connection, I find I find interesting. So yeah, no, I really enjoy. Oh, beautiful man. Um, I want to talk to you about growing the company now. Um, one thing that you picked out uh, that I relate to. Uh, learning how to delegate and the fact you struggled with that at the start. How did you change that? Yeah, yeah. So one man band is great at the beginning. I mean, everyone has to go through that journey, right? So uh, because you don't have the resource to delegate necessarily at the beginning. So you do do everything and then you start to Mm. go, hang on, I'm not very good at this or I don't like doing this. Let's find someone better. Um, Okay, I've got some resource and free your time up to do the things that you're good at, I think is the biggest thing that, that I've learned um, or that the business so, needs and the businesses. And I, I've gone through lots of ups and downs, had the wrong people, then nearly went bankrupt multiple times, mm. not bankrupt, but you know, nearly uh, the business was like in a bad place. Then I managed to find the right people to come in yeah. and then they've really helped to grow it to a certain level. But then those levels, people can grow it to a certain level and then they might not be the right people at the next level. Um, and people, can be really difficult sometimes and there's different morals different ethics it's 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 people have different motivations and you've got to understand those um understand people you're going to be on a roller coaster of emotions you have to learn how to try and control those i'm sometimes it's it's difficult in passionate people to do that you have to you have to learn that um (laughs) and yeah it's uh yeah you um i just think you come to a realization that you can't do it all. So you need to find someone that does it better than you. And then actually life Mm. gets a lot easier after that. Mm. What did bootstrapping to begin with teach you? Because there's this, it feels like this narrative at the moment of like, Oh, I want to start a tech company. And then before that sentence is even finished and I need to go and raise X million. Um, on just an idea and I need to just, I've got this idea and I need to raise money. It's, it's, it's just almost like a given that the first thing you do is raise money. Yeah. You are an example. And Dr. Julian, the company and the product is an example of not necessarily needing to do that. You got non-equity, non-diluted grant funding or non-equity grant funding, I imagine. And, um, that gave you enough to build the thing and then you've started to sell it and then you've got a business that has profit or at least it's got revenue and all that sort of stuff. So talk to me about what you learned from bootstrapping at the start. Yeah. I, mean, I think the first thing is I had no idea how to raise money at the time. <laughs> it was like, you know, there wasn't a program <laughs> teaching you how to do that. Uh, and then secondly, I guess the, uh, I think, yeah. So maybe if I did it again, I'd probably, not go through that pain again uh, but yes i think it was actually very good to do it like that at the beginning and it means that you don't give away everything at the start um and i think i kind of put my own money into it as well so it was like okay you know you, you really value the time and whatever that you're spending so you Skin have to be again. careful with with what you're with what you're spending um <clears throat> and i think it's unproven at the beginning right so in that sense, you're being really careful with what you're spending and you're sort of doing, again, incremental, slow changes. You're not going full out. I'm going to hire 100 people and it's a complete waste of money. And I see too many companies now raising money on a promise. And I just, I, I like the VC model is, is good, but I, sometimes I don't understand it at all because you're kind of, I mean, obviously it's a one in 10 or whatever that, that make it, but 
surely you, you want to give yourself the best chance of success to, to make it. And I think when something's completely unproven, then it should be done in research, not necessarily build a company and, and, and use other people's money to, 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 um, to sort of, you know, to, cause I, I see so many companies, they've, they've raised all this money and then they realize, oh my God, the thing I built doesn't work. Okay, brilliant. And now what? <laughs> and I've, I've hired all these people and, you know, do I, what are they, you have to know what you're using the money for or what you're hiring and that you've got to get value out of those individuals. But I think bootstrapping really le- teaches you to be careful with what you're spending and um, means that you're hiring people for the right reasons, I guess. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> obviously the VC model is a much faster way of doing things. And I guess I probably, if I had a, a new thing that I knew worked, would, I'd probably go down that route because obviously I, w- I wouldn't want to go through the pain again of bootstrapping it. But I think it was very good to do it for the first thing to understand <laughs> all those principles. But yeah, I don't know. What do you think of that concept? I, mm. I think you're using oh. a lot of people's money just on something that you have no idea is going to work or not, which I think is interesting. I've said those exact same things, but I, I've generally said them around the fact that I wouldn't feel comfortable taking yeah. someone else's money to figure something out. And I think it would be very... Because I think about that VC model. and I mean, I was raising a fund at one point, so I think about that VC yeah. model a lot. And I think the idea behind it, it's venture money you're venturing with that money so there's an element of risk of course there's an element of risk but as you say i think the model was more predicated on you notice the things that are about or that you notice the things that are starting to kick off you know that they're I don't know, cost per acquisition and, and lifetime value are certain metrics that are positive, and then you plow it with just millions to then just to then just scale it because you know it's going to turn into something. It's just how big. And yes, there's there's some things you don't know, but throw the money in and we know it's going to do so. It feels like to me that that's where that model started. And, it, and and that's where it made most sense, particularly when SaaS then comes along as unit economics that is just like hilariously good, 90% margins at Series A and all this sort of stuff. Like, you know, then it makes complete sense that all you need to do is copy and paste the code. And actually the rest can be spent on, you know, reducing your cost per acquisition and increasing your lifetime value. So like it all makes sense when I think of it in those terms, but I'm with you where it stops making sense are seed funds that are betting on an idea or pre-seed funds and accelerators that are really betting on like completely unproven stuff or then you're right it starts it starts to feel uncomfortable for me and whether that analysis is fair or not i don't know but it's how i think of that whole that whole thing and i think i would feel comfortable if i had the engine purring of hey i've built an mvp that is landing in the market i'm pretty much there with product market fit i know there's things i can make better but and and i know that's your framework too about how you just ship it and iterate it and stuff so like and then taking the money at that point or at least as you say like um i'm a three times exited founder and here's my idea well it's like well okay that kind of makes sense to bet on elon to make a car yeah it doesn't use petrol yeah like do you know what i mean so that's that's kind of how i think of it man yeah i mean having said that Um, like we've got to start somewhere and we need innovation in this country and we need businesses. So I think it is brilliant. The to other have, argument. Good point. Yeah. So I think it's brilliant to have funds that are willing to, 
to to do that. But I think I think where I get uncomfortable would be if someone raises money and just spends it without thinking about what they're spending it on at that stage, that's where I'm uncomfortable. So I think at the stage where you're learning and built, you've got to be careful on what you're spending and just make, you know, and, and getting value from it. I think that this is my mindset. So mm-hmm. not just wasting loads. Cause I've seen things where people just completely waste loads of money when they raise loads of money and they just don't know what, you know, what mm-hmm. you don't need to spend it on that. Let's work out what you're spending it on. So I think that's where that's like, yeah. different is understanding. And then when you know a model works, then you plow in the money, knowing what you're going to spend it on to, to really scale it and grow it. But just be cautious yeah. of what you're spending at the beginning. Yeah. I think is, is where my brain's at on that. I think, yeah, I, 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 I completely, I completely agree. And I suppose if I am to play devil's advocate, like that probably <clears throat> is their mentality. Cause probably I'm sure if you, you yeah. know, when you, well, I know this, when you do look at the numbers and you go, Hey, I'm going to invest X percentage of the fund to get, this cohort to potentially series a i'm then going to hold back 50 percent of the entire fund to then follow on into the people that reach series a so actually you've 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 sort of bet on 30 but then you really bet on 10 and then actually that's going to deliver plenty to those lps but if i am an lp into a fund and and christ that'd be a good day if if (laughs) i get that level of wealth but um i would certainly be quizzing them on their uh on on what makes them what gives them their unfair advantage whether that's deal flow whether it's the way they look at the deal whether it's the fact they know the customers whether it's the fact they've got i don't know all sides of that and all the rest of it and how they're picking what's their secret source and what they look for i I would be very obsessed with (laughs) what all those things are um but yeah i want to talk to you about the space that you're in now and the online therapy space, it's been one that's, it's sort of, it's matured, I think, from where it was. It looks very different to where it looked when you very first started. So where are we now with yep. online therapy as a concept, as a, as the technologies and the technologies it's using and, and where they're progressing into? Where are we now and where do you think we're going? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're obviously, as you say, we're, we're now in a quite, you know, reasonably mature market there, actually. So things have been proven, uh, things mm-hmm. work and, you know, there are a number of people doing it now. I think, um, for me, where it's going and where we need to be different is around the care pathway and the tech that you're using. Cause there's a lot of people doing it, but they haven't really built their own proper platforms or they're building it on a version of Salesforce or they're still potentially, there's a lot of providers using Excel still, which is crazy. And there's, you know, um, wow. or people say that they they some people have built their own platforms, but what we're finding when we're now showing them ours is that some people are going, hang on, I've just spent 4 million building it and it doesn't really work. So can we use yours? Which I think is quite interesting. So for, for me, where, where we, where, where you can set yourself apart and build it up is, is, is having the, the, the care, the whole covering off sort of the whole care pathway and the tech around that and creating partnerships with various people that can cover off more of that care pathway. So I guess the vision for me of where it could go is having a platform where you're this infrastructure play and um, where again, the patient comes in, they're assessed pro- properly with using um, a digitally assisted assessment. Uh, then if that person is suitable and wants to go down a digital therapeutic route, then they can, and you've partnered with those organizations, or let's say uh, you, you are giving them self-help tools and preventative space then when they need a certain uh, modality of care that's recognized, then they have choice. 
then they get that very quick access to that with the clinician that most suits them. You can use data analytics. I think that's, you know, that's a big thing. The data that we're collecting, can we keep personalizing the care to say this type of individual responds better to this type of treatment with this type of therapist or whatever? Um, so you can start to, to pre-predict things like that. So I think that's where things can go. Um, and then, or if it's not working, why is it not working? Let's work out why. Let's stop people from doing wasted sessions when it's not going to work. So let's make it more efficient in that manner and then give them the thing that can work. And I think all this data you can collect could be very interesting to, to put people in the right care pathways, et cetera. And then obviously doing all the notes in a more effective manner, making life easier for the clinician, stopping them burning out. I think one of the things with ours is like, you know, they can put up availability when they want to, you know, we, we operate seven till 11, I think, so one person had an appointment, I think, once at one in the morning. But, you know, they, they can operate when they want, um, however much they want to do. And therefore, you're really giving choice to the clinician as well. And you're making their life easier and they can work from home or whatever. So obviously, I can't say that online is for everyone either. So you still need that element of choice where people can then have it face to face if they want it. But if you can offload the system, I think they're saying 90% is now done online, which I think is, is fascinating since COVID. So, you know, if you can offload that system, then you're really, you know, you can really help it in that sense. And it makes it way, you know, way more cost effective as well. So there's a lot of interesting things that are happening, you know, that will, will happen in the future. I think data and AI will play a big role. I think the one thing we haven't touched on is the chatbot thing. So I think that's a very interesting concept. Now, my, philosophy has always been augmentation rather than replacement um however i think chatbots in the future who knows what they can be capable of at the moment i don't think they're capable of replacing a clinician i think they're capable of augmenting that clinician there might be chatbots that can really help with the triage of patients collecting information etc so that 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 currently works and yeah we'll see where it goes in the future but i still think in, in mental health that you need a human being because there's so many other factors that are there. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're people. We're being bombarded by so much stuff now in life. And I think that's part of the issue, right? Mm. So constant fight or flight response. But I feel like when you actually talk to a human being, you, 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 you go into a better place. So I still think, and especially in mental health, you need that human being. And also you need someone to be accountable to. There's a, you can be accountable to a robot, but sometimes you know, people have different philosophies on that. But I still think you get better engagement when you're accountable to someone in terms of like doing your homework, et cetera. Yeah. So it sounds to me like what you're essentially saying is the way that this is going is that these online platforms are not just connecting one person to another. They're doing far more and you're not really just addressing like an access problem or in part a capacity problem. You're actually improving the quality of care. You're improving the quality of the st- staff members experience as well you're making notes easier you're giving them flexibility you're giving them all this stuff but it seems like it seems like the the value of or the values that you have as an individual as an organization are really rooted in the fact that this type of care essentially needs to be delivered by a human not only for the very human nature of us feeling cared for by someone else is far greater than by a robot or AI technology or anything else, but actually the accountability bit as well. And I, th- and I, and I think I agree with you because I think at this level of care, I think is key there because there's, you know, I spoke to yeah. um, 
Alison uh, Alison Darcy from Wobot. Um, and her argument was the fact that, well, yeah, she agrees with you in that, of course, at this sort of level, but actually there's a bit that comes before where even you guys come in, which is how do you keep those people mentally fit? And actually those those are the people who wouldn't be accessing talking therapy anyway, and therefore this opens up an avenue to that. And I think that's, that's the thing, isn't it? That healthcare, mental healthcare, is actually a huge spectrum, isn't it? Like it's, I don't think we're quite there with defining what mental fitness really is like we are with physical fitness and how that can stave off physical decline, which we're pretty much there on. People talk about diet, they talk about exercise really easily, but you know, mental fitness exercises and mental fit, even, even the mental benefit, mental health benefits of certain diet, whatever we're not, we're not as au fait with that. I don't think yet. And so there's a lot of talk, as you say, of, chatbot and of the or the more automated stuff that doesn't require humans as a means of unit economics and mental health care but also notwithstanding the fact that you're absolutely right that when you're coming in at cbt level in a meaningful way to prevent suicide then of course you'd you'd struggle to find anyone in disagreement with you that that the humans should be involved but i think it is i don't know it feels good to me that there's lots of things going on in this space and actually that we can talk about horses for courses now we can talk about what might be right at different stages yeah um, i think the interesting thing but yeah it, it, it feels good to me no no i think the interesting thing you mentioned that and this is the vision of mine i guess going forward is a platform infrastructure where you can slot in different tools for people at different levels and as you say and yes. and it's also around choice um, because some people might not want a chatbot, but some people might want the chatbot, and actually they don't. They they like the, yes. auto- the 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 fact that you know they're not having to speak to a human being for that sort of thing because they're embarrassed or whatever. So some people, I think, again, it's down to choice. So I guess my vision moving forward there is is around, as I say, like creating this infrastructure where people can have preventative stuff again, the self help, um, because you know we have a limited number of clinicians. You then give them. The, the good assessment to uh, and choice. So some people might work with that digital therapeutic that doesn't need a therapist. Some people might work with that chatbot that doesn't need a therapist. Um, and then, but those that do get put into the right therapist and then you can make that therapy as efficient as possible. And hence, you know, we're staying in the space at the moment of the slightly more moderate to severe end, but partnering with those organizations at the lower end and, we, and because the infrastructure we have of the platform, we can slot those in to sort of create this new model of care where you're using the tech. And I guess, um, you, you know, moving forwards, it's where we can provide organizations at organizational level, big ones. Here's the tech infrastructure that you can use with all these different partners plugged in to provide that full spectrum end to end care model. I think, you know, the other thing is like we've got a limited number of clinicians still. So we need to make those clinicians as efficient, as effective as possible. And how can we free up more clinical time? So with, you know, even notes, whatever efficiencies, but actually that's not good enough. So for me, it was about, okay, how can we get people to do their homework more efficiently? So, okay, let's digitize that. So if that works, we'll do a trial on our tech because we can do a randomized trial instantly on our tech, which is really, we're in a very fortunate position because we have patients all over the country and we can randomize some people to have it, some people not. Mm. And we can say, right, how many sessions are you needing if you're using this and can you spread the sessions out therefore less human contact because you're, right. you're using you're using tech 
in the middle, if that makes sense. But you've still got that person there. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Before I let you go, mate, because we're going to wrap up in a minute, but you mentioned AI and you mentioned AI, something to do with homework in between sessions. Can you just talk about that for me? Yeah. Okay. So, um, what, so what I was just saying there, so the, uh, so patients don't do their homework in therapy, right? So it's very poor compliance, partly because they've got a mental health problem and therefore they are, um, very unmotivated. So if you're depressed, right, you're lying in bed, you're Mm. unmotivated to do things. Um, partly because, Homework is sort of set by a clinician, sent on an email, they've got to print it out, they can't print it out, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, if you don't do your homework, it's like if you go to your physio and you don't do your exercises, you're not going to get better. So homework is an absolutely crucial part of therapy. So my philosophy was how can we, well, hypothesis, I guess, was how can we make people more compliant and engaged in their homework? So um, firstly, let's digitize it as part of the ecosystem of the platform. Let therapists set it more easily. Then have it on an app, I guess, uh, as part of it on the patient's phone that can remind them to do it. You can use AI algorithms to match people to the homework that they can do rather than the homework they don't want to do. Or you set them tasks and goals and, and, and you, know, you can actually make a more sophisticated goal type homework system than is, you know there's thousands of apps trying to do that but i i they're not sophisticated enough so you could actually make something that's what we're doing at the moment with this innovate uk grant far more sophisticated and with ai in the background to to help personalize it and and, and again motivation comes down to and i do this as a gp to, to goal setting coming up with barriers to change so why if you're not doing it how can you relieve those barriers t- to do it uh, and then starting to um starting to improve on that so you know we've got the four main CBT principles that we're doing, um, behavior experiment, behavioral activation, thought records. Um, and then, yeah, and I think it, it's a case for me of all, trying to use AI in the middle uh, and for, for personalization and for motivation. So we'll see if it works. It's unproven yet. But I think, you know, that could also be a very interesting tool that others can plug in um, in, in these four areas to, to that. You know, it's a part of our tech, but also we can plug it into to other people's um, services if, if it works. Um, but I guess that's that will be interesting to see. Does it reduce the sessions? Does it improve compliance? Does it improve mm. outcomes? Yeah, uh, but I love that so you're just open research. to that as a question. I love that you're not just like, and this is going to work, and this is going to be great. No, we're going we're gonna to try, we're going to see, we're going to look at it, we're going to iterate, we're going to move on and be better afterwards, which is back to that philosophy that you've had right from the start. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, loved hearing about what you're up to. One final question for me would be, what are you particularly excited about at the moment, whether it's in the space, whether it's something to do with your company? What's one thing that's sort of getting you going at the minute? Okay, uh, yeah, so the homework thing is, but also I'd say, <laughs> uh, you know, we're at a revolution of tech now, right? Obviously, we're... this things are accelerating at a crazy rate with AI, et cetera. But I kind of feel like there's getting more and more um, acceptance of it. And especially with something like ours, what I'm really excited about is this, you know, is, is the old fashioned electronic healthcare type record case management system right for the shop? Can we create this new model of care that from all the things I was talking about um, can, can actually help to mm. solve some of the crises we're in. So for me, what's exciting is, is trying to say, can we create, a better model of care because the current model is not going to work in the modern era, in my opinion. 
Julian, as I say, absolute pleasure having you on, mate. If people want to learn more about what you're up to, what is the best way for them to find out? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, feel free to reach out to me, probably best on LinkedIn. Uh, so Dr. Julian Nesbitt on, on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, just I'm, I'm always on there. So just send me a message or connect with me. Awesome. And the Dr. Julian website, what's that? Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, www.dr-julian.com is our website. Um, Although it might need better updating. <laughs> yeah, we have again. <laughs> but yes, that's I think we're all embarrassed of where our websites are at based on what we're actually up to. So yeah, yeah no dra- no dramas there, mate. Uh Julian's for pleasure. Thank you so much, mate. Thank you, James. Lovely talking to you. Cheers. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.